you for listening to Sozo Church in Spokane, Washington. For more information on Sozo Church, visit sozospokane.com. Sozo Church. Amen, amen. How's everybody doing this morning? Awesome. My name is Mark. My wife and I serve as the lead pastors here at Sozo. Thanks for coming and hanging out with us this morning. It is a good day to be in church. Amen? It's good to have each of you here with us. Um, And those of you joining us from home, welcome as well. Um, We are going to be wrapping up John chapter 11 today. Uh, we've been we've been in John for a hot minute, and we've been in chapter 11 for a good stretch of time, and uh, we're going to be wrapping it up, and there's a, a few reasons for that, why we're choosing to do that this week, um, and they all sort of revolve around this wonderful thing coming up called Christmas. It's a thing still. Um, Christmas. I know if you're like me, you love Thanksgiving as well, and so you're angry that I'm talking about Christmas before Thanksgiving. I get it. I'm angry too, but we have to have a conversation. Uh, real fast about a few things. Um, so so th- there's there's a word that I feel like the Lord gave me actually for our church before this year started, but for this year for us as a people that I've sort of been waiting and I realized uh, that if it's going to get preached, it's going to get preached next week because after that we've got a Christmas series starting. We're actually going to do a Christmas series this year um, and uh, the we chose this several weeks ago. Uh, the title for our Christmas series is Can't Cancel Christmas, which Seems appropriate this year on a number of levels. Um, But really, what we mean by that, we're going to be looking at uh, Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 through 7 in this Christmas series, looking at how uh, you cannot stop the incarnation of Jesus. That God's plans and God's purposes could not be thwarted, stopped, or limited by human effort. And so we're going to be looking at the fact that, listen, you can cancel the tree and the presents, you can cancel the food and the festivities, you can cancel the parties and the caroling and all that stuff, but you can't cancel the plan and the purpose that God had in coming and visiting and stepping into the human story. Amen? Can't stop it then, can't stop it now, can't stop it on the big scale, can't stop it even in your own life. He's got a plan, he's got a purpose, and he is making his presence known. Amen? Uh, Along with that, uh, we want to just talk about a few quick things here that you need to know about the Christmas season. How many of you know that Christmas is a season of generosity for a people of generosity? People who are shown such elaborate generosity like us tend to be, come on, people of generosity. And and maybe you're new here, but we are a people of generosity. Uh, As a church, you guys are, I I would use the word ridiculously generous. Um, and, and, and just in case you're a guest here with us, or you're new here with us, and you think all I'm talking about is money, we are talking about so much more than just money. We, we believe this. We believe that we are called fundamentally as believers to be generous with our time, talent, treasure, and our testimony. That yes, our treasure is part of what God calls us to be generous with, but, but that's only a piece of that puzzle. You know, we, we're, we're seeing a lot of, of, of new faces around Sozo right now, and we welcome you. Thanks for being here. It's awesome to have you. Uh, please uh, 
partake as much as you can from the ministry that is being done here. But I want to challenge you, if you are feeling called to this place as your church, I want to challenge you to not just partake, but to participate in the ministry that's happening here. Find your place, that time and that talent piece. Find the thing that you're passionate about. Find the thing that you're gifted toward. Find your place to get plugged in. If you're curious about some of that, talk to any member of the staff. We'd love to help you find your place. We, we believe as a church that, that if, it, if you don't, or if you like the area that you're serving, it doesn't count as serving. You have to find a place you don't like, so that way it's sacrificial, you know? No, that's the opposite of what we believe. We believe that God put giftings and passions in your heart, and there's a place in the house for you to serve, amen? There's a place in the house, and there's a place outside the house, and, and God wants to use that. Uh, but we do believe, and, and you are a people that's very generous financially as well. And so uh, we, we are excited for our Go Big Christmas offering this year. You don't know about it yet. That's why you're not excited about it. That's, that, that's why, right? So Sunday, December 6th, that's just a few weeks away, um, we're going to be receiving our Go Big Christmas offering, and it is going to benefit World Relief. World Relief is a ministry, a bunch of Christians who've gotten together and said, hey, there's a bunch of people who are legally trying to immigrate, refugees trying to come to this country, and we want to help them uh, get plugged into this country. We think Christians should be the one to welcome them. We think that Christians should be the ones to, to love them and to be able to partner with them, and hey, wouldn't you know, maybe even preach the gospel to them. Come on. And so an opportunity has uh, come to us through World Relief. Uh, there are five family units that are not going to have Christmas this year unless somebody does something about it. And we say you can't cancel Christmas. So we want to make Christmas happen for them. Sure, we know it's just the presence of the trees and all that stuff, but come on, that can be a doorway. I say it this way. That's like buying a passport into somebody's heart. And so we've already decided as elders, we're going to give big this year just from the general uh, fund. We're going to give big into this, but we wanted to give you an opportunity not just to participate corporately, but individually. And so we're letting you know now, December 6th, there are these five families. We want to be able to buy them presents. We want to be able to buy them food. We want to be able to make Christmas happen for these five uh, family units. And so uh, I want to encourage you, if this is your house, if this is your church, if I'm your pastor, if we're your elders, I just want to encourage you. I think everybody needs to give something into this offering. So be prayerfully, carefully considering talking to your spouse, talking to your family. What is it that the Lord would call you to give? Whether it's $5 or $5,000, what is it that he would call you to give? What, what number would he put on your heart and then just give that sacrificially? We're not saying take the, the, the money that he's called you to give just to the house and just shift it over in the account. No, we're saying above and beyond what he calls you to give to the house. Let's give generously. Let's give big. Amen? So we're excited about that. Another thing that's uh, kind of a piece to this whole thing as well, they, they, they let us know uh, another need they have. Uh, a lot of these refugees are coming from places that are not cursed with winter. And so uh, as of right now, our plan is to still have some Christmas Eve gatherings. We'll, we'll give some information about that in the future. Um, but we're going to do a winter boot drive during that uh, Christmas Eve service. So we're going to encourage you to come here Christmas Eve or stop by the church beforehand if you're, a, if you're an at-home person, if you're a social at-home person, somebody that joins us online, and drop off a pair of either new or gently used boots. These are not like find your dirtiest, grossest, falling apart boots and bring them. This isn't a, a, a boot dump. It's a boot donation, okay? So, uh, so, so find those. Maybe your, your, your kids are like my kids. Their feet grow out of the winter boots before the winter boots grow out of their feet. 
And so you've got some nice boots laying around. You can bring them, maybe go to Costco, head to Walmart, go to Goodwill, find some boots. Let's bring them together and let's do that. Also, another way that you can help us with Christmas Eve is, is help spread the word about that, about the drive, about the service. Uh, whether that's inviting people online, whether that's inviting people in person, it's going to be good. It's going to be awesome. It's going to be great. You're going to love it because kids are involved. Christmas Eve around here is all about kids and kids are stinking cute. And so it's just, it's, it's guaranteed to make you go, ah, at least 12 times promise, or we'll give you your money back. Um, all right, cool. We good? You excited about Christmas? I am too. Let's get, let's get to the word this morning. Let's get to, uh, that which is before us. Um, I'm really excited about this. We're going to kind of try to tie up all of chapter 11 here with these last few verses that we have. I think these last few verses actually frame out quite well what we have seen. So let me just review real fast for those of you who have like no clue where we are. Uh, the Gospel of John is the account is, is one of four accounts in the New Testament of the life of Jesus. It's written by John. We, we call him John the Beloved. There's a lot of Johns in the Bible. This, this John is John the Beloved. Some historians, some scholars, some theologians believe that John may have been the closest earthly friend that Jesus had. Uh, in the Last Supper, we see John the Beloved not just around the table, not just sitting next to Jesus, but actually like leaning into Jesus. Actually, the, the, the word, verbiage used is that he's, he lays his head on his chest. He's, he's very close with Jesus. And so we have this very intimate account of the life of Jesus. He spends about the first 10 chapters uh, preaching, calling disciples, and, and really demonstrating the character, the nature of the Father to the nation of Israel just in, as, a, as a whole. And then at the end of chapter 10, we, we noted this, this, this shift that Jesus does where, where because they have consistently, constantly, continually rejected Jesus and said they don't want anything to do with him, they don't believe that he's the Son of God, they don't believe he's been sent by the Father, they don't believe in the mission and the purpose that he has, Jesus withdraws and he gives himself to those who are following him. He gives the last season of his life to pour into his disciples and then love calls him back. Mary and Martha send word to Jesus. These are two people that Jesus loves, not just with a, a, a God love, not just with an agape love like he loves everybody, but the Bible says like a phileo love, like a friendship love. And so he comes back in because they need him to heal their brother Lazarus. Jesus says, I don't worry about it. It's not going to end in his death. And then, <laughs> spoiler alert, Lazarus dies. So people are like, what did Jesus mean with that? He said he wasn't going to die, and then uh, pretty sure he's dead. Probably wait around, maybe he'll get better, maybe he'll, he'll come back. No, four days later, Lazarus is still dead. In the culture of the time, that meant he was dead, dead. Not just mostly dead, all dead, you know? He, he, was, he was gone. Jesus shows up, has private interactions with Mary and Martha, correcting their hearts in ways, and then he goes to the tomb of Lazarus, and he raises Lazarus. He commands life to come back into Lazarus. Lazarus is raised up. I put it this way, Jesus ruins this guy's funeral. He raises him from the dead. Lazarus comes forth. And despite the fact that Jesus has only done something good, how many of you think healing somebody, uh, raising a dead person back to life is a good thing? And yet, snitches get stitches. A couple of these people run off and tell on Jesus. They tell the, the, the leaders of the day, and the leaders of the day, proving that Jesus did the right thing in removing himself, the leaders of the day, in response to Jesus' good deed, they seek to put Jesus to death. They seek to kill Jesus because Jesus is unstoppable. He's growing in fame, in fortune, in, in influence, and so they're freaking out, and they say, we've got to put an end to this. And once again, they revive their schemes to put him to death. So if you've got your Bibles, we're going to go ahead and go to John chapter 11, verse 54 this morning. And let's go ahead and stand for the reading of God's Word. We love the Bible around here, amen? Yeah. Love 
the Bible. I know I said verse 54. I'm going to read verse 53 just real fast just to give you a little context. It's talking about the leaders. It says, so from that day on, they made plans to put Jesus to death. Verse 54. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to a region near the wilderness. Everybody say the wilderness. To a region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim. And there he stayed with his disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus, saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so they might arrest him. Let's pray together this morning, church. Holy Spirit, we thank you for your word. God, thank you for your living and active word, your breathing, moving, shifting, changing our hearts. Though it be unchanging, it shifts and changes us. Lord, thank you for your immutable goodness given given witness to in your word. Lord, we come before you this morning desperate to hear your voice in your word. We don't want to just come here and, and, and fill up our intellect and, 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 and widen our egos because we've learned a lot of information. Lord, we want to come here this morning and hear your voice, hear your whisper, encounter your presence, and be transformed by that encounter. God, we came here to hear from you. You tell us that we don't live off of just what we eat. We live off of what we hear. We came here hungry to hear you this morning. Lord, I pray for that one that that doesn't know the sweet sound of the whisper of your voice. Would they hear that today? In the midst of all that is spoken, in the midst of all that is said, would we hear your voice? As we hear your voice, God, we ask that you would give us the capacity to receive it. Lord, let, let, let the power of your word travel deep within the fibers of our being, transforming the very way we process and perceive things, shift the way we, we, we see the world, shift the way we see ourselves, shift the way we see you. Let us see more accurately, more clearly, more grounded and based in truth today, God, that we might glorify you and do good to all people. In Jesus' name, everybody said, go ahead and greet somebody around you and grab a seat. Amen, amen. Uh, we got a lot to cover this morning, so I want to just move quickly, if you'll allow me to. We had a lot to cover early on in the service before even the message, so let's go ahead and jump real quick uh, into all of this. I just have a few thoughts uh, kind of pulled from this text, but I think it, it encompasses all that we have read up into this point in chapter 11 um, if, you got, if you're taking notes, if you are, are doing that, if you're a note taker, uh, I'm going to be talking this morning, fruitfulness in the wilderness. Fruitfulness in the wilderness. First thing I want us to see uh, this morning, first thought I have from this text, 
is that uh, there are seasons when Jesus won't seem present. There are, there are seasons, there are moments in life where our experience will seem to contradict his promise that he will not leave us or forsake us. What I mean by that is there will be seasons, there will be moments, there will be times when, when there, will seem, there will seem like there will be no evidence of his presence, where you won't feel his presence, come on, where you won't, where you won't feel his provision in your life, where you'll wonder where his goodness is, where you'll wonder where his, where his kindness is, where we'll just wonder where he is. I think in normal everyday life, this is a question we have, and most certainly is a question that many of us have probably asked in this current season. Where is Jesus? I love the way that, that, that earlier, the end of chapter 10, he withdrew, and then it says the same thing here. He, he doesn't walk openly. He withdraws. He goes away, and the people, the general population is left to wonder where he is. And this is the principle I want to teach you as it relates to this idea of Jesus not always seeming to be present. And that is this, that Jesus never hides from you. Jesus always hides for you. Jesus never hides from you. He's always hiding for you. He has a plan and he has a purpose. There is a reason why he seems to withdraw your awareness of his presence. He's working on your behalf. How many of you realize that if Jesus would have allowed himself, come on, to be captured and crucified at this moment in history, it would not have fulfilled the purpose and the plans of God. So he withdraws not because, not because he's afraid, not because he fears death, but because there's a bigger purpose at work and at play, and that purpose and that plan is for you. His purpose, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to pastor a room full of people is difficult, but let me just say this, and, and hopefully you can hear me when I say this. His purpose is bigger than your pain. It doesn't deny the pain. It doesn't diminish the pain. It doesn't try to just sweep the pain away. But what it says is that, that the destiny that he has for you, the purpose that he has for you is bigger and broader than just the temporal, temporary season of discomfort you may go through. He's working something bigger. Paul says that, that, that the light and momentary afflictions that we face on this side of eternity are not worthy to be compared to the eternal things that he's working within us. I've said it this way for years. Your destiny is more important to God than your day. So if he's got to put you through some rough days, come on, to get you to the destination that he has purpose for you, he's more than willing to do it. When I say that he doesn't hide from you, but he hides for you, I think it presses us into a question. Do we trust, please, please try to hear what I'm saying. Do we, trust, do we trust the person or do we trust the presence of Jesus? Because if I trust the person, come on, even when I don't feel the presence, I know he's still there. Because his promise is this, I'll never leave you and I'll never forsake you. So when all the external evidence seems to be screaming that he has abandoned you, do you trust the feeling, come on, or do you trust the, the faith, the hearing of his word to say, he's promised to never leave me. I know he's here. I don't see him here. Come on, somebody. I may not be able to perceive by any of my senses any external evidence that he's here, but I trust the person, not the presence. This is part of why I prefer the term proximity to the term presence. You'll hear me use the word proximity a lot more than presence because proximity isn't about a feeling, it's about a fact. 
right? Like if I'm, if I'm within proximity to something, I am whether I feel it or not. So just as destiny is greater than day, I would say proximity is greater than presence. But I think there's another reason when I say he hides from, doesn't hide from me, but he hides for you. I think there's another reason here. And, and I think it may be, if I'm going to be honest, it might be part of why many of us in this season, in this year, have experienced this lack of evidence for his presence. I think when he hides for us, when he hides himself for us, not from us, I think what he's doing is he's trying to, to safeguard us. Let me put it this way from the, the, the biggest danger there is toward intimacy. And that is, that is this, this idea of a casual complacency. I think it's dangerous for the people of God to become casual with the presence of God. It's dangerous. It's dangerous for any intimacy. Anybody married? When you become, when you, when you take what is sacred, what is special, and you just sort of make it commonplace, because of its availability, you just simply sort of treat it as common, and it, oh, it doesn't really even matter, who cares, it's just always here. I mean, she's always there, he's always there. Some of you are like, yeah, they are always here. They won't let him go back to work. But whether, whether it's available all the time or not does not diminish its sacredness. We see an amazing picture. I don't have time this morning. I was going to go here. We don't have time to go there. But, but in, in 1 Chronicles 13, we see an amazing picture of what happens, the danger of what happens when we get casual with what God calls sacred. David is trying to do a good thing. David is the king of Israel at the time. And David recognizes that they don't have the Ark of the Covenant. It's this physical representation of the presence of God. He recognizes that it's, it's not within the, the, the city, and, and, and so the city does not enjoy the blessing that God says comes from his presence. And so David wants to do a good thing. He wants to bring the ark into the city of God. And so, so he goes and he gets the ark, and they're carrying it in. They're having a big party, and they've got it on a, on a cart, which isn't the way they're supposed to carry it, but that's details that we don't need to get into. And, and as, they're, as they're moving it into the city, it starts to weeble and wobble, but it's not a weeble, so it weebles and it wobbles, and it does fall down. Anybody born after 87 doesn't have a clue what I just said. They're like, weeble, wobble, what? Is he, is he having a stroke? Maybe. Um, falls over, and this guy named Uzzah. What kind of name is Uzzah? He thinks the ark is common. He thinks it's, thinks it's his job to protect the presence of God, to make excuses for the presence of God, to protect the the presence of God from being defiled by the ground as if the ground was more defiled than he was. And he reaches out, the Bible says, and he touches the ark, props it up. Problem with this is that the Bible, the word of God had commanded that the ark should never be touched. And so God responds to this casual approach to the presence of God and kills Uzzah. Uzzah falls over dead and the party stops. And, and I, I, I'm fascinated by what happens next. I, I don't have time, but I'm going to go there anyways. I think it's 13, 13. If I'm wrong, then we'll just move on. But there's one of the funniest verses in the Bible. So, so you, you catch the story, right? David wants the ark in, in, the, in, in the city of David. He's bringing the ark. The ark kills somebody. Verse 13. It was verse 13. So David 
did not take the ark home into the city of David, but took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom. Did nobody else find that funny? Like, oh, shoot, that thing killed somebody. Let's not put it in my house. Let's put it in his house. We'll take it to my house later. <laughs> Go put it in Obed-Edom's house. And, and I'm just, I, I've shared this y'all with y'all before. I, I see the Bible like a movie, man. So, so literally, like, let's, let's take it off the flannel graph and put it in reality. Imagine you are Obed-Edom. Right, like you, you may have been there at the parade, I imagine, because I think it was probably by his house because I don't think they were like, let's carry it somewhere far away. I think it was probably like the closest house to where they were. So Obed's like out with his kids. They're like, dude, it's the ark. This is awesome. I heard stories about this when I was a kid. This thing like does all kinds of cool stuff. Oh, shoot, somebody touched it. Oh, shoot, he's dead. And then David walks up and is like, we're going to put it in your house. In whose house? Your house. My, my house. I don't really have a garage to put it in. No, it'll just go in your living room. Really, the death box is going to go in my living room. You're the king, so I can't really argue. <laughs> Thanks. Let's put it in the, let's move the coffee table. Let's get that out of the way, and let's, uh, don't put your feet up on the tower. Okay, and it blocks the TV a little, but that's okay. It's, no, it's fine, David. We're cool. <laughs> Can you imagine your kids walking around the ark in your house? I remember when my son was learning how to walk. It took him a while. It's cool. He's good at it now. He's 15. But um, when he was little, I remember he, 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 he definitely toppled over a lot. Can you imagine trying to teach your kids to walk with a death box sitting in the middle of your living room? Can you imagine getting up in the middle of the night, you know, like you have to do sometimes? I hope that the ark was not in between Obed-Edom's bedroom and his bathroom. Because how many of y'all have stubbed your toe on stuff you knew was there? Now we got this big box in the middle of the room that, oh, if you stub your toe on it, <laughs> you die. I mean, I know when you stub your toe, you want to die, but this one just does it for you. But here's the amazing thing that happens. Obed-Edom doesn't treat what is sacred as something common. He does honor it. He doesn't touch it. He rearranges his entire life to honor this presence that stepped into his life. And the Bible says God blesses him so much so that David, the king, the king, the guy who, who by law at the time owns everything, gets jealous of what God's doing in Obed-Edom's life. And so he, he figures out the way they're supposed to carry it. With They're supposed to put poles through it. And the priest is supposed to carry it. They're supposed to make sacrifices. They're supposed to worship as they go. And there's a whole teaching there that I don't have time to get into. But here's the part I want to get to. As you go in, as David sets up the tabernacle of David where worship takes place and the ark lives, they make lists of all the people who want to serve in the temple. They have, door, they, have, they have people that guard the door. They have people who sing. They have people who play instruments. They have people who do, you know, liturgical kind of sacrificial ceremonial things. And do you know who you find in every single list? Obed-Edom. He got addicted to the presence that was in his house. He got addicted to, to, to treating not casually that which God calls sacred. See, I think part of the reason why Jesus hides for us is so we remember, like David, that it's worth the cost. 
that it's worth the cost of having to rearrange your life a little bit. That it's worth having to shift and adjust and, and maybe do, do without a few things that maybe you would want to do. Because there's a blessing that comes, come on, from the presence. This blessing manifests itself to Obed-Edom. I think there's a, a picture of that here in our text as well. The city that Jesus ends up going to by the wilderness is a city called Ephraim. Everybody say Ephraim. Ephraim. Ephraim literally means uh, to be fruitful. Literally means to be fruitful. See, Jesus, when I say Jesus hides not from, for you, but, or sorry, not from you, but for you, he's trying to make you fruitful. That's, a, that's like a pretty decent place to say amen. Okay, that's fine. You're good. When, when, Jesus, when, when Jesus does this, when he, when he withdraws from the hustle and the bustle, we can think that he's, he's wanting to detach and rest in the way that we think of rest. But in the kingdom, when God rests, he's actually more fruitful, come on, than we are. And so he, 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 he withdraws to a place called Ephraim to be fruitful. He does this for your fruitfulness. You say, how in the world does me going through this difficult season... How is, how is me not knowing that he's with me going to produce fruit in my life? I'm really glad you asked. How did you know to ask that question? You're such a good audience. Because God holds secret things in the secret place. See, as we refuse to treat what is sacred as common, our intimacy actually increases, it doesn't decrease. So as we draw near to him, as we press into him, notice his disciples find him. They follow him in that place. See, when we get alone with God, intimacy begins to grow. I'm all, I'm all for what we're doing here. This, this is something we're commanded to do, amen? We're commanded to gather together. God does something. God does something unique and powerful and significant in the corporate gathering together of the saints and the people of God. We are called, we are commanded to do this. But this cannot replace private, secret intimacy. They're, they're, they're separate things. Do you understand that? They're, they're separate. They're, they're, they're different. And there's something unique held for us in the secret place. And the secret place is reserved for followers, not just fans. At this moment in the life of Jesus, he had lots of fans. Lots of people liked showing up. I think probably a lot of people liked showing up because he ruffled the feathers of the religious, you know, elite at the, of, the, of the day. And, and he sort of, it was probably fun watching an uneducated carpenter win in debates against like the, you know, the, the, the snobby religious people. Because human nature is the same. You, you like watching the same kind. You like your team winning and the other team losing. So the, 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 the common people of the day kind of liked watching Jesus do this. They, they definitely, we know they loved the free food. When Jesus does the food multiplying miracle, the crowds get real big. Because people don't change and free food always draws a crowd. My dad used to say the best kind of food in the world was free food. Because, you know, he had like seven kids to feed, so. Jesus has lots of fans, but he doesn't invite the fans into this place. He only invites his followers, his disciples, those who have abandoned everything, those who have chosen intimacy over, over everything else. 
mean, we see this in the, in, even in, in chapter 11 where he speaks privately to Martha and to Mary. He speaks truth to them that he doesn't speak to everybody else. There are things that God will say to you in private that he will not say in public. There are things you will hear in your time alone with him that you won't hear publicly. That's why I say that they're different things. But you see, there's, there's something we need to talk about here. There's a word. I had you repeat it as we read it. It's the word wilderness. Everybody say wilderness. Wilderness, wilderness, wilderness. Wilderness is a word that God has never let me get away from in my preaching ministry. It doesn't feel like very much time goes by before he brings this back around, this idea of wilderness. The wilderness is a powerful place in the purpose of God. It's a powerful place in the purpose of God, this thing called wilderness. Many, 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 I, I don't want to say all, I think all, but I don't want to say all, but I think all of the people that God has used throughout human history have had to spend some amount of time in a place called the wilderness. We see it scripturally. We see it consistently throughout the scripture where, 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 where as we read through the Bible, we find the, the, the people that God is going to use going through these seasons in the wilderness. And, and you say, what, what do we mean by the wilderness? I mean a hard, dry, lonely place. Seasons, come on, where it seems like Jesus is hiding from you, not for you where you don't seem to hear his voice, where you don't seem to know his presence. And I say he's doing it to make you fruitful, and you say, how? And I say, because he sends you to the place of, 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 of the wilderness. And why does God send us here? God sends his people to the wilderness, I believe, for two primary reasons. And I'm not gonna preach long about these, but I do have a bonus for you. The first, he sends us there for preparation. He sends us there for preparation. In, in, in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus himself goes to the wilderness. So if you think you get to avoid the wilderness and Jesus did, then you, you, you got something out of whack there. Like, well, Jesus needed the wilderness, but I don't. No. Jesus faces three temptations in the wilderness. I summarize these in three, three terms here, silence, solitude, and service. What I mean by that is, 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 is when we don't hear his voice, oh, this is good. When we don't hear his voice, do you trust his word? Satan comes to Jesus and says, hey, you should take some of these rocks and use your magic Jesus powers and turn them into bread. And Jesus says, I don't live off of bread. I live off of the word of God. Do we trust? Come on. When everything around us just seems like rocks. Come on. Do we try to manufacture a word from the Lord or do we trust what he said? Do I trust his word even when I don't hear his voice? Solitude. Do we trust his timing and plan when we feel abandoned and alone? Service, what I mean by that is, will we continue to worship him and him alone even when easier paths seem to get put in front of us? Well, if you just kind of go along with this, life will be easier. Yep, but the Lord has called me to this path. So we walk that path. Now, I say I have a bonus for you. I, per, I, I, I preach a whole message on, on the wilderness, and I'm, I was going to do it today. I was going to go all into it. It's going to be great. You were going to get really blessed. It's going to be amazing. You're going to like, it was going to be fantastic. But then I was like, we got like 
40 pounds of stuff to fit into like a 30-pound bag this morning. So uh, here's what I did. I took that that teaching, that lesson, that that whole message, broke it out into a, a worksheet. And there at these two tables, the communion tables at the back there, as you're taking off t- today, if you want to grab one of those, if you want to take some homework home and really dig into this idea, if you are in a wilderness yourself, if you've ever been in one, if you're alive, so you're going to eventually be in one, uh, I'd encourage you to take it and uh, and do some study into it. Really look into it. It looks at Jesus' temptation and Jesus' time in the wilderness as a picture of our own and also shows us the way through it. I encourage you to do that. If you're at home, we're going to post it on Facebook so you can grab that there um, so you can have it. I said it does two things. It does preparation, but it also does transformation. It's an amazing thing I, I never saw until I, I lived in the wilderness long enough. I always thought, hear me please, tell, tell me if you're, if you're with me on this. I need to know. I thought God took me to the wilderness until he finished whatever he was going to do in the wilderness, and then he let me out. That's what I thought. Like, well, yeah, you, you pass the test. You get your little diploma, like wilderness society diploma, and you get to like, you know, like, I get to go home now. But here's the cool part. The Bible actually says that when Jesus, in John chapter, or sorry, Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, in verse 11, it doesn't say once Jesus, in verse 10, sort of passes the last uh, test, when he defeats the last temptation, it doesn't say, then he went away. The Bible actually says, then angels came and served him there. What happens is this. He sends you there for preparation until he brings about transformation, not only in you, but in the wilderness itself. Could it be, beloved, could it be that God has not spared us from this season because he wants to use us in this season, yes, to transform us, but also for us to transform where he has placed us. Because how many of you, how many of you think it's still wilderness when a third of the Godhead and angels are there? I think any place where Jesus and a bunch of angels are cannot legally be called wilderness anymore. I think you have to call that place heaven. Right? Am I, am I wrong? He transforms the wilderness from being wilderness to being the kingdom of heaven. And he places you in the wilderness that you're in, yes, to prepare you, and yes, to transform you, but so that he could so prepare you and so transform you that the transformation that's in you actually flows out of you, and you become the agent that transforms the wilderness around you. Not just for your good, but for the good of all people, amen? So let's, let's, let's break this down then. I think testing leads to transformation, but here's the cool part. Transformation leads to triumph. Do you know what happens in chapter, don't, I hope you haven't been reading ahead. But in chapter 12, this is amazing to me. Jesus withdraws, goes away from the crowd, goes away from the system, goes away from all of the stuff that everyone, everyone, everyone in the story thinks he should be doing, right? Like, really, is Jesus, he wants to be famous, right? That's what the crowd thinks. Is he really going to hide from, like, the big party? No, he's going to be, he's totally going to be here. Is he going to be here? I think he's going to be here. He hides away, and yet in verse 12, we see that that hiding actually led to what we call the triumphal entry. You see that that, that testing that we go through of, of, am I going to trust the person of Jesus or just the presence of Jesus? 
Am I going to walk by what I heard or am I going to walk by what I'm seeing? When we go through that test, that test produces a transformation in our life. And as we walk out that transformation, it brings about the place of triumph. There is more waiting on the other side of where you are right now. On the other side of the wilderness, there's more waiting there than just another wilderness. Jesus marches into Jerusalem triumphant. What I'm trying to say is this. Preparation in the kingdom is rarely practical. I don't, I don't usually like to, to talk about my journey as much in this area, but, but I feel like it's applicable. I, I remember 20, 21 years ago, 21 years ago, it would have been 20, 21 years ago, somewhere in there. I, it doesn't matter. 20-ish years ago, sitting on this stage, it's newly married. My wife and I had signed up for what we call a presbytery, where, where some people who are, are, are particularly gifted by the Lord in, in hearing his voice gather together and are willing to pray over people and trust that God may speak to them. And being newlyweds and kind of knowing that the Lord had a call on our life, we said, hey, we, we want to kind of know what it is that we should be doing. And, and of course, we were, we, were, we were like a sneeze away from being illegally young to get married, literally. Um, 19 years old which really just meant we were horrifically impatient. Like, there's nothing more dangerous, I don't think. Well, maybe there's few things more dangerous than, like, a young, impatient person with, with some sort of prophetic sense of destiny. We can, they can screw up all kinds of stuff. It's great. I want to rush everything. And, and I remember sitting on the stage, and, 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 and we still have, this will date this, we still have the tape. Tape cassette tape somebody prophesied over us they saw us walk this is the word they said I see you walking around this building like you own the place now at the time my wife and I got married so young partially because we were twitter pated and partially because okay a lot of because we were twitter pated but also because we felt at the time called to the to the mission field called to go overseas and and we we literally thought we'd probably spend our lives living in some little hut in india or africa somewhere and and we'd just be there over you know for the rest of our lives we had a heart for india still have a heart for india and we thought that's where we'd be forever and and so when they say this word about you're going to be here in this house and you're going to walk around like you own the place see ministry on you in this place we're like you need to turn the dial a little bit I literally, I literally remember, remember thinking, I won't say who it was, but I knew there, I, I literally remember thinking this. Uh, there, was, there was somebody that was going to get prayed, this is so bad. There was somebody that was going to get prayed for the next night, and I was like, I think that word's actually for them. I think they got like the wrong script for the wrong day. They think I'm somebody else. Here's what I'm trying to say. The Lord took my wife and I from there on a, what would it be, a 15-year journey that very little of it had anything to do with us being in this house. 
practically speaking, if, if, I, if I was trying to move the puzzle pieces around to kind of land where, where I am today, I would have stayed here, right? Like, like practically speaking, if you're going to prepare me to take the, 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 the ridiculous job of being the one that, that leads this house, then, then I should have stayed here, right? I should have planted myself here, right? No, you follow the voice of the Spirit regardless of how impractical it may seem. How in the world does me moving to Montana lead to this? How in the world does me moving to Seattle lead to this? Because here's what I want to tell you. Preparation in the kingdom is rarely practical. (laughs) Preparation in the kingdom is rarely practical. Why, if Jesus wants to do the triumphal entry, does he withdraw into the wilderness? Because, listen, he's always, he's always going to prepare the one before he prepares the way. See, Jesus is interested in preparing you. He does not need you to figure out how it's all going to work out. That needs to liberate somebody this morning. Because some of y'all like have like all kinds of numbers and maps and charts and figures floating around your head all the time trying to figure out how you're going to make everything work out. And here's the, here's the, here's the really cool, like, you're never going to do it. The Lord actually challenged me one time. I can't prove this in the scripture, but the Lord actually challenged me one time. He goes, if you figure out the way I'm going to do it, I'll change it and do it a different way. I can't prove it in the Bible, but I, that's what I heard. And it makes sense, right? Because he gets all the glory. And if I figure it out, then I get the glory. Like, yeah, I totally figured this out. He always prepares the one before he prepares the way. Amen. he's preparing. He's, he's, he's doing the exchange thing we've been talking about. He's trading the way we think for the way we need to think. He's trading the way we feel for the way we need to feel. He's trading the way we respond for the way we need to respond. He's working something in you. What I'm trying to tell you is this, the wilderness is never wasted. Never. You say, but I feel like I'm failing and failing and failing. Here's the cool part. He will keep giving you the test until you pass because he's faithful even when you're not faithful. Let's stay to our feet. Couple, couple things in, in response this morning. Uh, I mentioned it already, homework on the wilderness. I really would encourage you, uh, grab that resource, take it, use it this week to study, use it this week to kind of dig in. And, and, and maybe, maybe my hope, my prayer, my belief is that it will help you in your journey through the wilderness in that season, whether you're in it now, it might prepare you for the next one because God is always, come on, moving in seasons, which, which leads nicely, I think, to, to the next thing I think I need to tell us, and that is just that Jesus moves different in different seasons. Anybody who's walked with Jesus for more than one season knows this. He, he, he moves differently in different seasons, and we do ourselves no favors when we try to, try to force God to work in this season the way he did in the last season. You're in a different season right now than you've ever been in before. And, and here, 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 here's my struggle. Maybe this is your struggle. This is my struggle. I don't know if it's yours. I struggle with, with, with allowing, with, with finding joy in this season because I either want to go back to the last season or I want to go to the next season. get in trouble. I'm not not looking around the room. 
I have sat across the table with young men who tell me, I just can't wait to be married. And then I've sat across the table with those same young men one year, two years, five years later when they have rushed through what they needed to do and go, man, I just can't be married anymore. Can't figure this out. They can't wait till the next season. Come on. Now they can't wait for the last season. We need to learn to live in the season that the Lord has us in. This is your season. This is the season the Lord has something unique and powerful and personal for you in this season. I'm not saying it's going to be an easy season. I'm not even going to say on paper it's a good season. I'm saying in the Lord, come on, it's a good season. Why? Because he is always, come on, and only good. Don't try to live in the past. Don't try to live in the future. But also, this <laughs> talk out of both sides of my head. Don't get stuck right now. You ready for good news? For at least half of you, this is going to be good news. And for at least a few of you, this is going to be bad news. The season you're in right now will come to an end. might be the best season of your life. It will come to an end and another season will start. That next season might be better than this season. It might be on paper worse than this season. You might be in the worst season of your life and you think this is going to drag on forever. I'm here to tell you it won't. It will pass and the next season may be better or not. God moves in seasons. We're called to embrace the season we're in, embrace the unique thing that God is doing in that season last thing I want to say, I felt, I felt this really strongly this week as I was praying, as I was trying to prepare, trying to ask the Holy Spirit, where do we, where do we end with this? I think when we're in the trial, when we're in the, te- when we're in the testing, come on, when we're when we're, maybe when we're even when we're experiencing the transformation, when, when things are beginning to shift and change in our heart, in our circumstance, regardless of where we are, here's what I believe. As, as New Testament, New Covenant, sons of God, here's what I think we need to learn how to do. I think we need to learn how to live from triumph, whether we're in the testing or whether we're in the transformation. I think we got to learn how to celebrate. Come on, rejoice in the Lord always. Even, even, come on, even when I, I just feel the pressure, even when I just feel the, the pressing in, even when all the trial and tribulation seem, seem to be pressing into me, I rejoice in that season. Come on. Because it is preparing for me such a weight of glory that it's not worthy to be compared to the pain and the pressure that I'm going through. Pressure is an amazing thing. Depending on what it gets applied to, it either destroys it or it improves it. Pressure will crush worthless stuff in your life. But pressure will take coal, come on, and turn it into a diamond. That heat and that pressure is meant to transform you. So we got to live, come on, we got to learn how to live from a place of triumph from a place of rejoicing, from a place of declaring, come on, even when we don't see it, the the power and the presence and the goodness of our God. 
So this morning, I just want to encourage you. If you're here, maybe in your life, you've been going through a lot of of turmoil and difficulty and you're wondering what the heck is going on. Maybe you showed up here because you're just trying to figure out maybe this church thing will help me figure it out. I'm here to tell you, this church thing is not going to help you figure it out. But Jesus, come on somebody. Jesus brought you here today. Jesus has you hearing this message today. Because he and he alone can redeem every season in the entirety of your life. Regardless, listen, regardless of whether you have jacked up your life or somebody else jacked up your life, Jesus and Jesus alone has redeemed that. He has a purpose in the midst of that. And he calls us to admit and abandon our own feeble attempts of trying to make something of our life and to embrace and entrust him with our lives. And in the moment that we do that, the Bible says we become like Lazarus. We were dead and we become alive. The Bible says we were separated from God. We become united with him. In fact, it uses even stronger language than that. It says you used to be an enemy of God, whether you knew it or not. You used to be an enemy of God and he makes you his family. He becomes your father. Puts his spirit within you. Gives you a desire for him that will eat up every other desire. Come on, somebody, in your life. If you're here today, I'm going to plead with you to do that simple act of admitting and abandoning and embracing Jesus. It's the best thing you will ever do. If you're here today and you say, hey, that's that's my jam. That's my daily life is abandoning stuff and embracing Jesus. So that's how I live and move and have my being. Well, then welcome home. We're glad you're here. Let's triumphantly celebrate. Come on, the goodness of our God. We're going to sing again. We believe in responding as a church. We're going to sing again. We're going to lift our voice. We're going to declare the goodness of God. We're going to take communion. It's available at tables in the back. If you're a believer here this morning, you are welcome to grab one of the prepackaged communions. We've switched to that in this season to make it a little bit more conducive for people. We encourage you to partake in communion. Remember the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus. Receive the grace that comes from that remembrance. We also are going to have, just want to make it known to you, we've got a, a team of people that will be meeting down behind the chairs back here in this little lit area team of people that would love to stand with you and pray with you. If you have a need in your life, if you're doing that repentance thing, that believing thing, that turning thing, they'd love to stand with you and believe with you. But if not, if, if, if you just have a need in any way, shape, or form, physical, mental, emotional, financial, anything going on in your life, maybe you're going through a wilderness and you just need somebody to stand with you and believe with you to make it through, they would love the, the privilege of being able to do that. And then we're just going to sing. We're going to celebrate and we're going to believe. Come on, church. We're going to believe that as we praise, come on, stuff shifts. That as we worship Jesus, he meets us in this place and he does the impossible. Holy Spirit, thank you this morning for your word to us. Thank you for your presence with us. Thank you that you have a plan beyond the current circumstances in our life. God, that you have a plan that's bigger than just what's going on around us. God, that you have a purpose that goes beyond just the pain that we're currently experiencing because you are always and you are only good. 
God, we ask that you would grant repentance to those and faith to those that needed this morning. Lift the eyes of your sons and your daughters to see beyond the circumstance, to see beyond the wilderness and see the fruitfulness that you have hidden for them there. You went to a place called wilderness, but you abide in a place called Ephraim, a place called fruitful. And God, we want to we want to bear fruit, God, not just for our own good, but for your glory. God, that you would make us a fruitful people today. In Jesus' name, church. Let's respond to the Lord.